to Everyday Cults, Everyday People, a podcast exploring destructive, controlling groups and the impact they have on everyday people like you and me. This is Jane Taylor here with Jarette Bouillon, author of An Everyday Cult. Thanks for being with us. Today, we will explore what Jarette has identified in her book as the fourth stage of cultic involvement, snapping, as in snapping out of it. This is the period of dawning recognition. It's the acknowledgement that you've been indoctrinated. It demands a huge shift in consciousness. For many, it's also an awakening of conscience when you see how you or your loved ones have been harmed by the group. It may also be a realization that you have been complicit with something that is in direct contradiction to your deepest personal values or even morality itself. Complicity is a charged word in this circumstance. Normally, we think of the cult member as a victim. Jarette, talk to me a little bit more about complicity. I knew you would want to talk about this, Jane. So one possibility is that, like what I want to share with you is this idea that perhaps there's a difference between complicity and perhaps the appearance of complicity. I personally think of when one is complicit, that there's like an assumption that both parties are kind of equals in a way that there and that there's a certain amount of like, okay, we're in this, we're in this thing together, even though we know it's, you know, like not a good thing, you know, but when one, one of the individuals involved in such a relationship, when one has been manipulated, or one has, and that could be in a very subtle way, or it could be in a not so subtle way, agreement becomes very different. And, you know, in thinking about this, I, I actually went and did what I often do is I, I'll look up what's the, what's the root of a word? Where does it actually come from? And complicit comes from the Latin word complicare, which is to fold together. So I started thinking like, well, what is it when unequal participants are being folded together? you know, things can get kind of messy. And in the cult world, it might be that this kind of messiness is unique to the everyday cult concept. You know, like in a, maybe a Jim Jones type cult, the, this relationship might actually be more implicit, like, you know, implicit bias. It's much harder to see. Um, and that root is actually in Latin, um, where one is folded in, where one's identity really becomes merged with the group. But in the everyday cult that I was a part of, we actually centered our work around individuality and becoming, you know, our unique, most potent selves. So you can't have that kind of merging. So you have to create a kind of, at least an appearance of autonomy, an appearance of mutual decision-making. And in that way, like when, when things start to go awry, you know, like 
it's actually really easy to point fingers and say, you know, this is willful ignorance, or they should have known better. But there's something really different happening there in that complicit relationship. Were you complicit? Yes, I was. Um, at least in the way that I'm talking about here, that I truly believed that my work with Doug was this beautiful partnership that was, you know, truly based on, you know, we're working on this project together to support my evolution into being a beautiful, upright human being and a woman of God. And, you know, I really believe that Doug had my back in this kind of partnership. And when I was going through what was determined to be a particularly difficult period, that usually meant that I was, Doug had identified that I was in my resistance a lot. So I would ask for him to get harder on me. Mm. I would ask for additional sessions with Doug and let him know, hey, Doug, I want you to go after my pathology. Even even in the scene that we talked about last week, in the strangling scene, scene, oh, I'm talking about it like it's a movie, as if it were someone else. That's interesting. But, you know, I agreed to that technique. I did not say, when, when he made the suggestion of this idea, I didn't say, whoa, 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 wait a minute, you know, that's crossing a line. Or I didn't even ask, man, like, this seems a little bit harsh. Is this really okay? I took it without questioning it. Now, my husband would challenge Doug. And that kind of made him a bit of a pain in the neck for Doug, because in an everyday cult, Jane, Doug couldn't just kick him out. You can't excommunicate someone. In this kind of a cult, you have to maintain that appearance of everybody's welcome. Mm. How were the other group members complicit? You know, that's something that is really for everyone to discover on their own. I I literally would, would not venture to discuss that at all, because it's such a profoundly individual experience. And much more so, I would say, in an everyday cult than in a, well, earlier I mentioned Jim Jones or David Koresh, you know, like these cults where, where there is a really active, far more, far more controlling and more overt control, more overt, like I am giving my life to you, to this work. We don't do that in an everyday cult. So how each person was complicit really rests in their own heart and mind. In in this explanation of complicity, you talked about pathology, and I don't think that's something we've touched on yet in this series. Could you explain what you mean by pathology here? Yeah, thanks. Good catch there, Jane. In the group that I was a part of, Pathology was the, the entity that exists in every person. And it's really what wants to keep you, prevent you from being your higher self. 
So it's really identified as your, as your dark side, as your, your resistance to becoming, um, you know, the most vibrant and truthful and honest human being you can possibly be. And the only way pathology in CTL, the Center for Transformational Learning that I was a part of, um, the only way you can identify your pathology was through Doug's interpretation of your dreams, as well as an analysis of your astrological birth chart, and and really also the way that you were playing things out, the way that you're, you were behaving within the group itself. It sounds as if what Doug called the pathology was actually your subconscious trying to save you. I think in many situations that is absolutely true. And that is something that I really write about in a number of times in my book where when I share a dream that I processed with Doug in the time that I was in the group, and then I look at the same dream with the eyes of having gotten out of that environment. And it is sometimes just absolutely compelling. Like it can unglue me at times, like, whoa, like how my dreams actually were trying to get my attention about what was unacceptable. Back to snapping and snapping out of it. You snapped out, as you describe it in your book, because of verbal abuse that you witnessed among your group. Wikipedia defines verbal abuse as an act of violence in the form of speech that decreases self-confidence and adds to feelings of helplessness. In your book, you describe the verbal abuse Doug inflicted on one of the members. Verbal abuse is not usually considered a crime unless maybe you're clergy or a psychotherapist. Many states do not recognize verbal assault to be an actionable crime. What aspect of this abuse elevated it to the snapping point for you? In other words, why was it such a big deal given that Doug was not legally bound to the constraints of a typical doctor-patient relationship? Hmm. Whew. You know, it's it's actually like really hard to say, Jane, like why this was the moment for me. Um, in my book, I describe this scene. And what I can tell you is that before this moment, um, and just to give listeners who may not have read my book, a tiny uh, snapshot of it. I, I'm sitting in a meeting and the day after I've learned that six of the group leaders, like the top people who I've admired for, you know, years and years and who have helped me in so many, many ways, I've believed, they all left in one day. And the meeting that we had the day after they left is this scene where literally at the very end of the meeting, one of these leaders describes how Doug would call her and berate her. And this happened not once, not twice, not three times, but many times. And it would go on for a long time. So 
for me, like, you're right, Jane, I had witnessed Doug doing this to people for years in the retreats, in sessions, he had done it to me. But why was this the moment that I finally snapped out of it? I like how you say that, by the way, Jane, snapped out of it. You know, I think that there was something about the juxtaposition the, 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 of the crisis in the organization that shook me to my core. And that happened the day before. And then to be in this meeting, you know, listening and trying to understand something that was incomprehensible. Because before that moment, I still believed that everything Doug did had integrity. I believed that he was spiritually perfect, which also made him, you know, emotionally, psychologically, everything perfect. But when Kaylee spoke, it was the truth. Like I could just, it was undeniable. Like her, there's something about her gentleness of spirit and the fact that she had a history of abuse. So to think that Doug would yell at Kaylee, like if it had been somebody else, I may not have snapped, but it was Kaylee. And that was like, whoa, wait a minute now. <laughs> this is so wrong. This can, this is unconscionable. Why did Kaylee stand for it? Why didn't she just leave? So that's like, it's one of those questions, Jane, that is, I, I could probably venture to guess that pe- anyone who has gotten out of a cult will say, this is the question that we hate the most. Mm-hmm. Because, sure. yeah, you know, like, because it is, it's, a, it's extremely complex. And you know what comes up for me around this question? Um, this is going to seem like a total diversion, but I'm going to tell you anyway, because it's coming up for me that I have raised chickens my entire my entire life, childhood as well as into my um, adulthood. And years ago, we had a predator that was like pecking off one hen after another every night. And it, and it was like, man, what's going on? We could not figure out what was happening. We finally got the hens, I think we had maybe six or seven of them at the time, in this small kind of box that we made really safe for them. Like there was no way, you know, a hawk or a weasel or a coon or anybody could get into it. Well, in the middle of that night, we heard the squawking again, ran out and discovered a raccoon had ripped the metal roofing off of that safe box we had created, crawled its way into that box knowing very well what was in there because it had been having a nice meal every night for the last few nights, or maybe its relatives had. And my husband and I ran out with our flashlight, shine the light into the box, and the raccoon that had one of my hands pinned down with his big old paw froze. So now we have my hands with a raccoon in this box. So we had created like a raccoon trap. (laughs) It was pretty bad. And the reason I'm sharing this story is that what happened next was like unbelievable to me. We had to shine the flashlight 
on this scene for a couple hours because we didn't have a gun. We didn't have a way to get the raccoon out. You know, we didn't have, we, we just were like trapped ourselves. Like, oh my God, what do we do with this thing? So we're shining the flashlight and after a little while, the hen that was under the raccoon's paw moved away from the raccoon. But within about, I don't, it's hard to know how much time it was. We were just waiting for daylight when we could call a neighbor who knew how to deal with this stuff. And an hour, maybe two hours, I'm not sure. The hen that had been pinned by the raccoon got up and snuggled its way over to the raccoon and snuggled itself right into the side, burrowing itself into the raccoon itself. So like, this is like Stockholm Syndrome. Like, why does a captor snuggle up to their abuser? I mean, this is kind of extreme in a way, but I think it's very important for people to understand that there are highly complex factors that go into these relationships where power over abuse is inherent. It's fascinating, the chicken story. Really so very compelling. And I think that people who have not experienced cultic abuse or maybe have not uh, consciously experienced abuse in their lives ask this question. I think that people who have experienced abuse wouldn't ask this question, perhaps. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. Did Doug defend himself? I never heard him. Wow. And what made you believe Kaylee over Doug? You know, just, it was the truth. It was undeniable that, that she was speaking from her lived experience. It was the truth. I think that's all yeah. I can say. And it stood in stark contrast to what I had believed to be true. You got out of the cult fairly quickly. In your book, you describe your leaving as almost instantaneous. Is it common for people to snap out of it so quickly and so definitively as you have done? I would say it's less common for it to be as quick. And I like how you use the word definitively, because for me, it was definitive. What I have experienced through hearing many, many, many people's stories, oftentimes there are these moments that we have, like that the veil lifts, that we, we see something that we couldn't see otherwise. And you never know what is going to prompt that. You never know what's going to cause the crack that will let in that light. And yet, sometimes the crack or the lifting of the veil is more of a glimpse or, you know, a shimmer of, of a crack. And, and then there's, you know, maybe some more, some, you know, some other experiences or interactions that build up over time to a, a larger awakening. And I, what I will say is that I have seen very often there's a relationship between 
those cracks and one's conscience. Because most of the time, the cracks happen when we become aware that someone else has been harmed or we ourselves have been harmed. That there's like a a sense of injustice, a sense of this is not okay. Like it was so not okay for me that Doug would yell at Kaylee. And that, you know, awakened my conscience. Even though he was regularly yelling at you, to see him yelling at Kaylee was the turning point for you. Exactly. Were you aware of other offenses that Doug committed? Well, every offense that he committed, I had a story for it. By a story, what I mean is I had a reason to believe why he was doing that. I believed there was always a good reason for him to do whatever he did. I was taught, you know, not to ask questions, not to question. Once the truth came out, was Doug held accountable? No. Jarrett, you're one of the founding collaborators of Hashtag I Got Out, which is an organization that sheds light on the universal experience of harmful mind control systems such as the cult you were in. How does I Got Out hold cult leaders accountable? Really, the only way we do this is through telling of our stories. I Got Out itself, we actually have a commitment to not name the leaders of any group that people are writing their stories about that are actually posted on our igotout.org website. The reason for that is to protect ourselves from nefarious cult leaders. The, The whole world of, well, and that's kind of a whole nother conversation, but But I truly, truly believe, Jane, that when we tell our stories and when people who have not experienced cultic stories go onto our website or go onto or hear hear from one of their best friends who shares their I Got Out story, we all wake up that what I Got Out does is we are waking up not only each individual who's been in a cult, but we're waking up the world in a way so that we can question ourselves, we can question what we have seen as, oh, that's okay, I'm not, that's their business, not mine, so that we can see what's going on underneath these systems of coercion. And the more that we hear our stories, the more that we hear those personal accounts in the way that Kaylee shared her personal account in those, you know, three or four sentences she shared at the end of that meeting that I was in, her story woke me up to what I had been enduring for years and years and years. I love that you're using the phrase wake up because that's the subject of our next podcast. Before we end, I just want to ask, how can we, as allies, hold cult leaders accountable? Yeah. I have to say, it touches me so much to hear you ask this question, Jane, because 
being one who, you know, who escaped, <laughs> you know, who got out of a cultic environment, it can feel, I can feel like a freak at times. I can feel like something was wrong with me. And I know in my heart of hearts, nothing was wrong with me. What was wrong was a society that I live in where this kind of injustice is acceptable. So allies, we are allies of all kinds who have experienced abuse or not. The way that we can work together is simply by like doing what we're doing now and speaking up, just like asking questions. And there's also, I want to circle back to, um, like the, the definition for consent we had talked about, uh, a couple sessions ago, a couple um, podcasts ago. You know, recognizing things, aspects of our legal system that actually make it easy for perpetrators to keep on doing what they do. So that, that's like another way of getting, like getting involved in, um, the uh, consent awareness network or getting involved really, I think what's maybe most important too is notice what's happening in your own community. What is the leadership like in the town you live in? Are there aspects of that leadership that are unacceptable? Like, are there some leaders that keep turning other people off? Or look at the organizations, that every organization you're a part of. If you sense there's something fishy going on, ask the questions. That's the way we hold not only cult leaders accountable, we hold ourselves accountable to our own conscience, to our own humanity. Like, that's what we're here for. We're an interpersonal species, you know? We're here for each other. Thank you for telling your story. I really appreciate it. I'm so honored to be part of this. I want to remind our listeners that the views and opinions expressed in this podcast are those of Jarette Bouillon, arising from her personal 18-year cultic involvement and from her work in cult recovery and education. Jarette is author of the memoir An Everyday Cult and is a founding collaborator of the hashtag I Got Out movement, amplifying voices of individuals who have experienced cultic abuse. Their stories steer us to a new day where abuses of power are recognized, called out, and dismantled. Search hashtag I Got Out or visit igotout.org for more information. And our theme music is by Moon Panda. Thanks again. Thank you, Jane. Total delight. <laughs>